everyone who tuned in for the Changemakers podcast. I'm Catalina, and today I have Michael Sano as my guest, who is a higher education community manager at EdSearch, a news organization with a focus on the future of learning. He is also an optimist who has the mission of making higher education more accessible and easier to navigate. This episode covers a range of topics, from the challenges faced by higher education institutions after the 2008 recession, the challenge of balancing financial sustainability and quality education, to the role of technology and digitization within learning. So welcome, Michael, to the Changemakers podcast. Uh, we usually start this conversation by uh, having our guests introduce uh, themselves. So I would like you to introduce yourself and uh, a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing. And from there, we'll continue uh, diving deeper into the whole topic of uh, education and learning. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Catalina. Um, my name is Michael Sano. Uh, I am currently the higher ed community manager at EdSurge. Um, EdSurge is a news organization with a focus on the future of learning. Um, so we largely serve educators that work um, in K-12 and higher ed. Um, we also have an audience that works in the ed tech sector. So we kind of see ourselves as a bridge between um, the educator world and the product world that serves those educators as well. Um, and I've been at EdSurge for about a year and a half. Um, before that, I worked um, at a few different colleges and universities here in the San Francisco area where I live. Um, most recently, I was uh, working at two really small institutions that are mostly graduate institutions um, as their chief student affairs officer, so overseeing all the different um, student support systems and mechanisms, um, including career services at one place. I think we're going to dive into that a little bit. Um, and before that, I worked at a more traditional um, private university here in San Francisco um, in disability services and then in academic support, in our academic support center. Um, so I've had a long history of, of working with uh, students uh, from the support side uh, at the institutional level, and I've had a few other random jobs along the way as well. Awesome. Sounds interesting. Uh, so I, I, as I hear, most of your background has been in um, education or uh, student support. What kind of draw you in this area in the first place? You know, I think it was part of this desire to be a lifelong student. Um, you know, I just always really enjoyed learning and, and personal development. And uh, when I first graduated uh, from my undergrad, um, I went uh, and moved to Spain to teach English for a little while. And I ended up teaching there. And then I taught in Panama for a little while. And then I was on a contract job with the Panamanian government that um, didn't work out. Or it, did, it did work out, but it ended. Um, and then uh, my boss offered me this job in the Dominican Republic running experiential learning programs uh, for teens. Um, and so through those experiences, you know, I really um, gained this perspective as an educator. And I thought about going back to school to become an academic of sorts. Um, and so I was seeking out a job when I moved to San Francisco in the higher ed world, just to kind of have exposure to working at a university, what that was like. Um, and along the way, decided uh, not to pursue a career in academia as an academic, but rather um, in this other capacity as somebody who worked in student support. Hmm. 
um, what was kind of uh, the patterns or maybe the common problems that you encountered in these different systems uh, and countries that you worked in within education, if there is any pattern? <laughs> yeah, well, let me talk about my experience um, at the university level because I think um, I worked at this, the University of San Francisco for a while and I left when I first became a little disillusioned with sort of the higher ed system overall in, in the States. Uh, and that was partly because um, it was shortly after the, the 2008 recession had begun in the U.S. And um, we were seeing that impact sort of trickle out all over the United States and impact um, education in various ways. And, you know, one way was um, the enrollment of students that we were seeing. Another was the strength of the endowments at different universities. Um, and I think a lot, at that time, a lot of universities were sort of shifting their models a little bit to react to that economic change. Um, and I felt at the time, and I was maybe a little bit younger and a little bit more idealistic, that, that a lot of institutions were straying from their mission to do that. Um, and I decided to take a break from that world for a little while. Um, and I moved actually um, out of the country and I went back to work for the organization I worked for in the Dominican Republic in Nicaragua for a bit, doing these experiential education programs, um, which was great because it was, you know, a re-inspiration of sort of the power of really real active learning, you know, and community-based learning. And when I came back to the States, um, I took this job at a very, very small institution um, here in San Francisco that serves a very specific population. It's a school of Chinese medicine that trains acupuncturists. Um, and I got this really great, you know, bird's eye view of how an institution works uh, at all levels because it was such a small place. Um, and I got to work with just about everybody else who was there and all the other offices and departments and very quickly became part of their leadership team. And, you know, there I became exposed to this whole other issue that I think is happening in higher ed, which is um, this issue of sustainability. Um, you know, we were a small school uh, facing some financial difficulties, and we came up with some different strategies to um, address those. And in the end, we ended up seeking out a merger uh, with another institution. And I think, you know, that's one strategy that higher ed um, institutions are looking at. But, you know, so I think overall, um, what I've seen is that while there is this um, resilience to education and higher education, um, we're currently seeing sort of cracks in the fissure, right? Like the models that we operate under are no longer working to the extent that they were in the past. And I think institutions are really grappling with like, how do they change their the model in which how they create revenue and they serve students uh, while maintaining a quality education and sticking to that mission that I was talking about earlier. And definitely that's a real big challenge. Uh, as you mentioned that um, education has to deal, you know, with this reinventing itself in, in the sense of a business model, because I mean, I guess, especially in the U S because in Europe, it depends a little bit per country, but uh, as I understand in the U.S., uh, educational institutions, especially in higher education, are treated a little bit like a business, <laughs> which means that, uh, I guess, uh, having revenue uh, is a big part of that. Uh, what is your view on that or your experience with that? Uh, how do we kind of 
create this balance between university as a business and university as an institution that serves the population and educates future generations? It's mm. a good question. I think, you know, one, we have to recognize in the U.S. there are two, um, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of institutions, but we have our publicly funded institutions like our community college, our state school systems. Um, and then we also have a lot of private institutions. Um, so their models are going to be really different. I think something that's really important to note about the public system is that, you know, the funding for those systems has really decreased in, over the past decade. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans are not aware of. Uh, there was a survey that came out recently that showed most Americans believe that, you know, funding for public higher education institutions has either increased or re remained the same when in fact it's decreased by quite a bit. And so in reaction to that, you know, we see the tuitions rise and the institutions have to find other ways to raise money. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, a big part of the problem for, or part of the solution on the public education side is just getting that, um, that funding back to levels where it used to be when college was more affordable. Um, and that is sort of a political problem and a government problem. Uh, but something that I think people can really push for, um, in the U S um, and then the private side, things are a little bit different, right? Like a lot of the funding, um, comes from either donations and the endowment that the school has, and then the tuition that comes in and those tuitions tend to be, um, higher. Um, and I do think, you know, I think that people see value in a college education or university education. So I think there is a willingness to pay for that. Um, I personally believe that, you know, there should be access to a higher education for everybody that doesn't cost anything. Um, and that will, would include, you know, covering the cost of living while going to school as well. Uh, but I think we're in the U.S. a uh, bit of a ways off from that. I know that in, in other countries, they've been more successful at uh, funding those, uh, those educational programs. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you said that um, uh, everyone should have the right to education um, or should have access to, to education. Uh, what do you think is the role of technology within that? Because, you know, as you said, with EdSearch, for example, there's a lot of focus on the whole ed tech scene. Um, from your experience and from your knowledge, what has been the role of technology uh, within this whole educational uh, scene and how do you think it will influence it in the future? You know, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, when EdSearch started, I think there was um, one technology just wasn't being used in education that much or it wasn't being used effectively. Um, and I think at that point, our founder, Betsy, she saw a real need to, you know, help inform educators about what options were out there and what best practices were. Um, and how to really move the needle in schools adopting different technologies. I think now, almost a decade later, you know, we've arrived at a place where um, technology has just infused every single part of our lives, right, at least in, in the developed world, um, mm -hmm. that the questions now are, are different, right? It's not like about how to do it, but like how to do it right. Um, and so the question that we're looking at, too, is what is the future of learning And how does technology play a role in that process? Um, and again, I think, you know, a few years ago, we saw people saying things like, oh, this technology is going to change the way 
that we educate people, right? Or the way that people learn. Um, and now I think the attitudes we see a lot more is, oh, we should think about the ways we want to change education and the way people learn and then build the technology that supports those notions. Mm, that's interesting. Um, what would you say then uh, is this future of learning uh, and is there one future of learning or there are more? Oh, I definitely don't think there's one future of learning, but I will say that I think uh, the conversations I hear, there's a lot of talk about <clears throat> the focus on learning as a lifelong process, right? Like right now we tend to think about learning that happens, you know, when you're in primary school And then if you go on to secondary school and to, you know, um, like a college or university education, and then if you go on to graduate school, we think about it in these chunks and in these sort of discrete time periods. Mm -hmm. um, and I think more and more we're thinking about how people are going to be learning, you know, from the time that they're very, very young to the time that they're very, very old. And again, this question of access, how do we make sure people are linked into the educational opportunities that they want throughout their lives? And also the bigger question of like, how are those educational opportunities linked to one another? Um, how do people tell the story of what they've learned and really present it to others uh, when they want to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. mm, what would be then the the role or what is actually the role of universities? Because, um, I don't know, as a, as a graduating student or as a, a recent graduate, let's put it like this, I always kind of had the impression that uh, university or college uh, institutions are there to kind of prepare you for work life. Um, uh, what is your vision on that? Is university actually supposed to prepare you for work life or is it supposed to kind of develop you as a person and uh, what do you think will be the role of these institutions in the future you know i think universities are there to prepare you for life in general right and your work life is a big part of that and it's included in that um, i think we hear a lot about the the quote-unquote skills gap and i think That the skills gap is a bit of a myth. I mean, that's not to say that um, people can't be better prepared for the jobs that they're going into. But I think it is to say that universities actually do do a pretty good job of preparing students for uh, being workers over their lifetime, you know, learning how to learn new skills over the course of their careers. Uh, learning how to be good communicators and critical thinkers over the course of their careers, right? The discrete skills that are very, again, time-bound, like things that are specific to a job, maybe a, a decade in our lives or, or whatever it is, um, those are things that people are going to have to continually learn and, and sort of upskill on. Um, and does the university have a role in that? Um, I think it could. You know, I think it does to some extent right now, Um, I think through some partnerships with um, different industries um, and just different models of the way that educational opportunities are offered, that they could have a bigger role in that. Um, we've seen that like companies and employers are sort of moving away from their role and their participation in that process. And, you know, I think if they want to rely on universities who are, who are experts in, in education to do that for them, that's fine. But I think there's a lot of links that need to be connected to be able to do that effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think it also comes down to that question of access, right? Not mm -hmm. thinking only in terms of 
um, okay, I'm going to get my college degree and then I'm done with learning, but uh, there should be more connection between these different platforms offline and online uh, of learning throughout your entire life. Uh, which I think in this uh, context, um, this community uh, that you mentioned that we talked about at the beginning uh, is going to be really important. So uh, I would like to s- shift a little bit the discussion towards this whole topic of community and um, what do you think is the role of community in this whole education scene and lifelong learning? I think community is, is so, so important. I mean, learning is at its core, I think, a social experience, right? Like, yes, you can watch a video and gain some new knowledge or read a book and gain some new knowledge. But I think to me to, you know, learn something in a really meaningful way, in a way that you can apply it and maybe twist that knowledge into, into new ways of being, um, it's usually through a social process, you know, whether that's through um, discussion or other social interaction. Um, and so as we're presenting information in these more dynamic ways online that's more accessible to people, they're ne- going to need to interact with it within their communities, you know, whether that's um, professional communities that have maybe a sub-community of people trying to learn with one another um, or, you know, more independent learning communities of people that are interested in certain topics. Um, I think the growth of those communities is going to be more and more important as more people are learning remotely and need to connect you know across distances to do that mm-hmm. um, within this um, whole context of community and digital learning um, I feel like uh, nowadays we have a lot of access to information knowledge and learning uh, there's an overwhelm actually of knowledge and information mm-hmm. uh, how do you think students in the or learners in the 21st century should deal with this uh, knowledge and information and um, how could we you know filter it uh, so that it's relevant to our needs that is a really big challenge isn't it and i think that's you know i think that's another thing that a typical undergraduate education uh, is moving towards addressing more. You know, as I talked about, I think those universities have been really good at preparing students with these kind of lifelong skills like communication and critical thinking. And I think information literacy and digital literacy are going to be another skill that's added into that sort of um, collection of skills um, that universities can provide for folks. I mean, that's not to say it shouldn't happen in other places too, and that it can't. Um, but I think we're going to see that infused into more educational programs um, in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say are the learning needs of students um, nowadays? I mean, you, you, you worked before in a lot of student support um, area. Uh, have you seen a shift maybe in, in the learning needs uh, of students from when you started maybe and uh, nowadays? You know, I'd say the shift I've seen is more in the kinds of students that I've worked with, right? So um, in my first couple roles in higher ed, I worked with um, what we call, quote unquote, traditional undergrads, right? Like they were mostly in this 18 to 22-year-old age range. Um, And, you know, most of them were people who had family members who had gone to college uh, at some point in the past as well. Um, and so they, they came in prepared in a way that I think most students are not. 
Um, we're seeing that more and more colleges are trying to reach adult learners um, who maybe have had some or, or no college experience, maybe are the first in their families to go to school. Um, and those learners have, you know, I think a different set of needs than, again, the quote, traditional learners. So I think that's the difference. Um, these are folks, and I think those these folks can be served um, sometimes better by online learning opportunities, um, but we need to really improve the support that's there for those students because I think not all the support that's available on your traditional campus has translated to into the support that's needed um, in online programs. Hmm. Um, what do you exactly mean by the support? Because um, I think in Europe we have something like that, but I'm not sure how different it is from what you mean with that in the U.S. Um, well, what I mean is this. When we think about our adult learners, they have a different set of needs in terms of one balancing their time. Uh, often they're working or they're taking care of family. Um, and mm -hmm. I think helping students uh, balance their time, but also connect them with resources or maybe even just think about the ways they're going to manage their other responsibilities while they're studying as well is a big piece of it. I don't think that comes in a lot for these um, you know, younger um, college students that maybe don't have those responsibilities as much to, to think about. Um, I think there's also more support that's needed in terms of navigating the bureaucracy, often of especially like public institutions, um, and how to pay for college um, in the U.S. that can get really complicated um, in terms of navigating the financial aid system. Um, so more support in that area as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, making these links between what people are learning and what their goals are afterwards. You know, especially for a lot of adult learners, they're going back to school to move ahead in their careers, right? And making sure they're taking the courses that are relevant to them, the program that they're in that's relevant to them, that they're then making those connections to um, the people in the fields that they want to move into or that they want to move up in um, so that those opportunities are there. Mm -hmm. Do these um, people actually have a, like a clear goal? Okay, I want to go and learn about this because this will be relevant or is there sort of also like a some groundwork in helping them understand what they actually want to do? I think both, you know, I think there are people that come in and know that they're like, I, you know, this is my career path and I really, I want to get from, you know, A to B and like, I, I need to figure out what I need to do to do that. Right. And then I think there are other people that are maybe more in a more exploratory phase. Right. And they, they could use some support in figuring out what is that goal they want to set for themselves? Or maybe what are some paths that they want to try out to, to figure that out? So I think that there's both kinds of learners out there. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is the role of a teacher and also a professor in the 21st century? Um, huh. Well, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about this difference Um, between a sage on stage and a guide on the side, right? And um, I think that the instructor's role is somewhere in the middle, but I, I do think as we move um, into the future, like my hope, I'm, I'm kind of an idealist uh, and an optimist. Um, as we see, you know, more these more human-based jobs become harder to replace with technology, 
I am hope that we'll be able to hire more people to do this human to human work, right? So what does that mean? That means we'll be able to hire more teachers and more professors. Because um, we hear a lot about personalized learning from sort of like how can technology personalize learning? But I think what's going to be more important in the future is how can we employ more people to personalize learning human to human? Um, and I, you know, I think studies have shown again and again when students get that real personalized human-based support from their instructors that they are more successful. You know, whether that means when they're in the classroom learning, whether it means when they're outside of the classroom learning, whether it means when they're exploring what their career opportunities are, um, that human-to-human support um, becomes really important. Um, and so I think in the future we'll see, I hope, you know, um, smaller class sizes, more individual opportunities for individualized connection and support from the teachers and professors to their students. What do you think, or how do you think, uh, it, it, talking about uh, digital uh, learning, uh, or online learning, um, how uh, do we measure uh, student performance and achievement in a digital environment, and do we have to measure it? Oh, that's a good question. Do we have to measure it? I, you know, I think this is a huge, huge challenge. Um, how do we measure what students are learning or what learners are learning, right? Um, and there's a lot of, I think, differing opinions about this. Um, and how do we do it? Not just how do we do it, but how do we do it in a way that's meaningful for them, um, but also for the people that they want to, sort of share their experience with. And I'm thinking, you know, most specifically about potential employers. Um, I think I see a lot of people who talk about, you know, um, models of learning that fall under a competency-based education, right? Where the focus is not on, you know, completing a course um, in terms of time, uh, like in a semester, but reaching a certain competency level, right? And gaining a certain skill. Um, and I think that, you know, there are different institutions and different instructors have ways of measuring that. Um, I think the challenge lies in how do we, one, knit together those systems in a way that makes sense uh, for all learners, and two, in a way that makes sense uh, to the people that might be evaluating that learning uh, to try to figure out who they might want to hire for a job or work with on a certain project or whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I would like to see us move away from our current assessment models um, that rely really heavily on people, you know, completing certain tasks within a certain time frame in a certain course and also receiving grades or scores on things. Um, you know, and there are a lot of folks, I think, that think that learning can just be expressed through projects. So, you know, you can say, well, I know how to do this thing because, look, I, I built this thing with the skills that I have. But then I'm often left wondering, well, what about all those things that maybe are untangible in that way? And how do you sort of prove learning for those things? Um, and that I don't have a good answer for. Well, exactly. That's that's my challenge and thoughts as well. I mean, there's so much focus um, on teaching this so-called 21st century skills, 
which are very much intangible, right? Like empathy and communication and creativity. Um, exactly like how, how do we measure that? And uh, is it possible even to measure or should we even measure that? So it's a definitely a good challenge <laughs> to think about. Yeah, you know, sometimes, I mean, I think something to think about is that the assessment measures we have in place now um, often work as filters, right? So whether it's um, assessment from, you know, secondary school into university, we're looking at grades and test scores, the admissions people are using these as filters to sort of narrow down the number of applicants they look at. Same thing when we look at, like, the job application process, looking at, you know, what do people major in what school did they graduate from maybe what their gpa was uh, maybe did they pass a certain uh, kind of exam or whatnot and again i think they're filters i think when people make decisions particularly around who they want to work with it's usually based more on a human interaction or a sense of trust so whether that's through, you know, networking, like, oh, this person was referred to me and they've worked with them before and they know that they can do these things and that they're a good person to, to collaborate with, um, or through an interview process, right, where you, you kind of get a sense of somebody through spending some time with them uh, in that way. Um, so, you know, there are some people out there who think maybe um, this whole notion of, of sort of like jobs, uh, long-term jobs is going to go away. Um, and that people will be working project to project. And if, you know, there's a successful collaboration on one project, then that leads to another one, right? And if there's not, then those people decide they're going to work with other people. Um, it sounds a bit chaotic to me, but I don't know. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because um, at least in Europe, I've noticed quite of a trend uh, of young people um, designing their own career paths. Mm-hmm. Especially in the Netherlands, I kept meeting people with job roles that created themselves um, because they just don't want to conform to, you know, some job applications or they don't want to get into a box of a role. Um, what is, have you noticed something similar in the U.S. and what is your vision on, you know, creating your own career path and packaging your skills into sort of profession? Um, Yes, I think there is a similar trend. I think we have um, a bigger barrier, actually, for people doing that, in that in the U.S., um, as you know, like a lot of people depend on their employer for access to health care, right? And so I think that prohibits or discourages a lot of people from seeking out this kind of self-designed career path. Um, because then they also have to figure out their healthcare on their own. And that can be a really daunting uh, thing to, to tackle. Um, but despite that, we see, I think we do see more and more people doing that. Um, and just the number of people that are kind of working for themselves as independent contractors is growing. And I think will continue to grow. Um, I think in the U.S. we're going to have to deal with the healthcare issue around that and some other things as well. I mean, there are a lot of people that are like called gig workers that maybe aren't designing a career path, but maybe in between jobs or, um, are working for companies, you know, I'm thinking of the classic example is like Uber or Lyft, right. Where they can just jump in, work some hours, jump out, do another thing. Um, and how those employees are treated and classified as employees, um, has not 
really been decided in the U.S. And I think the companies are kind of skirting around those regulations. Um, and so I think the decisions that come down about that are also going to have a big impact on um, how people are able to uh, design their own careers or how companies are able to kind of hire people um, that in there. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think what I wonder is, and, and is like if, if more and more people are designing their own career paths and working for themselves, um, does that mean that the sort of traditional organizational principles we're used to of like company and nonprofit, like are those organizations going to dissipate? Are we going to see people collaborate in a different way? What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think so. Actually, I've been thinking about that for a few years now um, because I've seen sort of this trend of people designing their own paths. And I've always been a little bit of a rebel <laughs> in the sense of, um, you know, asking questions, you know, why, why there are companies, why there are hierarchies, why there are certain roles, um, especially in uh, the 21st century. And we talk a lot about this 21st century skills and this focus on more human to human interaction and more communication and more empathy. Um, so I definitely think this will change. Um, also talking idealistically, I'm an idealist myself. Um, I would like it to change because, um, organizations, um, I'm, I'm not sure how to put this. Uh, so it sounds how I mean it. <laughs> um, I feel like a lot of companies are limiting the human potential because once you enter into a profession or once you enter in a role, you sort of get sucked in and you're always, you're always dealing with a certain set of tasks and a certain set of responsibilities, which leaves very little room to explore other things. Uh, at least in most organizations, there are many examples of companies who are actually innovating this and creating a lot of room for, for their employees to um, explore more and learn more. Um, but um, yeah, coming back to, to your question, I think definitely there will be more of a flow maybe a community of young professionals who just kind of collaborate on different projects and don't really work for a company, but, you know, they jump in together, work as a team on a certain project, and then they move on to another project. So maybe the, this um, concept of an organization or a company is going to shift. Um, and with that, probably also the power. <laughs> That would be a nice thing to see. I mean, I guess my question, I, what I wonder about is then like who, who is organizing, right? Like who is driving the sort of vision, right? Cause I think the strength that we get from having organizations, whether companies or nonprofits or whatever they are, um, is that they do have this, I hope, uh, mission and vision, right. That they're sort of marching towards, um, and I guess if we had a community that, that had that as well, we could make progress, but then it's like, where does accountability come in? Um, if things are just all happening on this project based continuum, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely a challenge. Um, it, it might end up being a huge chaos. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely a good question. I mean, 
maybe people will will sort of change from project to project, but there still needs to be a solid structure that you know creates this mission and vision and sort of keeps people accountable. Um, yeah, I don't really have an answer to that. I guess we'll just have to see how this evolves and how organizations are responding to this trend. But uh, what I would definitely like to see is actually having smaller uh, local companies um, because I think there is a huge problem with having really big organizations that take monopoly over different industries. Um, so I would like to see more, maybe smaller uh, organizations emerging everywhere around the world and uh, bonding people in this kind of communities. Um, yeah. I agree with that. And actually it makes me think of, I was just reading this article um, yesterday about um, online education, right? And um, the, sort of the idea was like, how many big online universities can we have? Because in the U.S. right now, we have some really huge uh, numbers of enrolled students at a very small number of institutions that are offering quality online education. And, you know, the question in this article was kind of like, how many players will there be if, if we need those kind of numbers to offer, like, good online programming to people? Um, and there was a quote at the end of the article, I really appreciated that, um, you know, that thinking about online learning has become this kind of panacea for enrollment instead of thinking about how this technology can help these institutions fulfill their missions and serve their local communities, right? And so like you, like I'd like to see us return to serving communities, whether that's a local community or a distributed community, but I think really yeah. thinking about not how do we reach everybody, but how do we reach a connected, concerted group of people? Yeah, exactly. And uh, within that, I guess the whole concept of growth should change or we, we should change our relationship with this growth mindset because I feel like uh, with communities, but also with companies, there's a lot of focus on growth and scaling up, right? Um, and I would like to see more people, you know, slowing down a little bit and just having this focused positive impact uh, on a community without having this ultimate goal of growing it. <laughs> I totally agree. And actually I was just, I was just thinking about that this morning too, because um, a colleague of mine shared an article from the New York times um, that I think just came out today or no, it was earlier this month about tech splitting the U S workforce in two. Right. And this article went on to talk about how um, it's, technology is widening the gap between those who have um, good paying jobs and those who have low, low wage jobs. Um, and as I was reading it, I couldn't help thinking like, this is, I don't think necessarily a technology problem. It's a problem related to these uh, principles of growth associated with advanced capitalism, right? That like growth at any cost, how do we get more quote unquote productive? Um, how do we do things more efficiently instead of uh, maybe better? Right. And I think, that you're right, like we have to change that mindset um, if we're really going to do things well in the future. Definitely. And talking about the future, what is your personal vision on the future of learning or where, where would you like to see it? Well, so as you know, I, I work in higher ed, so I'm going to talk mostly about higher ed, I think. Um, 
But what I'd like to see is this return, you know, to focus on um, local communities on one front, um, you know, whether that's community colleges or state schools or even private schools in a certain area. Um, I think thinking about how they're supporting people um, in that area. And that it doesn't mean they have to be coming into campus to get that education, right? But I do think it's important that they're thinking about one, how can they connect people that are in the same physical location with one another so that they can meet up or maybe go to like smaller um, like sites where they can get support that they need. Um, and also thinking about the links that the, that the educational institution has um, to the broader community um, and how they're, in, you know, bringing in the challenges and the problems in that community into the learning experience. So, you know, that might be, you know, a pipeline issue of, of filling jobs for a certain industry. Um, it might be any sort of societal or um, issue that that community is facing and that they could use um, more people to be involved in, you know, and bringing those challenges into the learning process so that, you know, the learners are benefiting from having that real world learning experience and the community that they live in and that they learn in is, is benefiting uh, from the work that they're doing through their studies. Um, uh, I saw, I think, on your profile or on one of the posts you shared <laughs> an interesting phrase that caught my attention. Uh, it said that education is the most effective tool for social change. Um, what, what is social change and what is the role of education within that? Um, that's a really good question. Um, you know, when I think about social change, I think about, um, change for the good. So I think, you know, kind of thinking back to what we were talking about, looking at a big problem like this growth mindset issue that we're trapped in, um, that's really affecting the way that we build things sustainably, um, and the way that, um, people benefit from, um, you know, wealth that's out there, knowledge that's out there, everything that's out there, right? Like who benefits. And, um, I think social change to me is, you know, making changes to, um, our, you know, very important systems like our education systems, our health systems, um, our governmental systems that really address those changes. Mm -hmm. And I do think education, um, really serves as a way for people to gain the history that they need, uh, the perspective that they need, um, hopefully the connections that they need, um, and the knowledge they need to address those big problems. Awesome. Um, one of the last <laughs> questions, um, who is for you a change maker or what do you think of when I say change maker? And secondly, uh, what do you think are the skills or the traits that change makers have? That's a good question. And you know, I'm gonna, so the first people that come to mind are kind of like big name people and I want to hesitate I'm going to refrain from like naming those names because um, I like a lot this notion, I think before we started recording that we were talking about um, that anybody can be a change maker, right? If they have the right resources and they have, they've been able to find the right community and make the right connections. Um, and so um, I think I'm, what I'd like to refer back to is this, this group of students that uh, Catalina and I met through that are, 
Um, students who, what's called the Unsurgent Dependent, uh, we're currently in a transition phase. We're going from a cohort model to a more open community, so you can stay tuned for more information about that. But um, these are students who are interested in the future of education and really seeking out to connect with one another at institutions across the U.S. and across the world to find one another and address these challenges together. And that's a really good example, I think, to me, of people that are change makers that take the initiative to, one, identify what their passion point is, what it is they care about, where they want to make a difference, to go about identifying the other people who share that passion point and want to work together and collaborate on addressing those challenges. And then three, you know, get creative about how they're going to put some things into action. Amazing. Um, where do you see EdSurge uh, in the future or in a few years? Um, you know, I think we'll continue to uh, be an important voice in the world of education to tell the stories of the educators that are out there uh, trying out new things, uh, getting experimental, uh, thinking about how to improve the education system. Um, and I think we're going to really try to build on making the connections between those educators and people in other industries that can help support their work. Amazing. Final question to end on an inspirational uh, note. Um, what is the change that you would like to create or contribute to in your lifetime? Uh, I think it comes back to this uh, question of educational access. Um, right. Like I said earlier in this, in this uh, chat, like right now the higher ed system in the U S is um, very expensive for people um, to get a degree And although there are resources out there for folks to help them pay for that, um, it can be a maddening experience to try to navigate that system. So I'd really like to help simplify it. And I mean, one, get more funding into the system so that it's uh, easier from that perspective, but two, um, you know, creating more support systems so that people don't have to deal with that barrier at all, that if they want that access, they can go easily find a way to get it. Sounds amazing. Uh, well, thank you, Michael, a lot for uh, being part of this podcast. Um, it was a very interesting uh, conversation, very insightful for me as well to, to hear your perspective on education and physical learning. Um, I hope this has been interesting for you as well. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me and, and I hope to talk to you soon. everyone for listening. This is the Changemaker podcast, a series of interviews with people driven to create a positive impact in their communities and the world. If you like this episode, make sure to reach out. Stay positive, follow your dream, and make this world a better place. See you next week.